0: We began a series that will take us through Reformation Sunday on October 29th. We began a sermon series that I've entitled, Here I Stand. And Here I Stand were the famous words that were spoken by Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great Protestant Reformer, as he stood at the Diet of Worms asking to asking to recant his views, asking to recant the objections that he had posted by way of the 95 theses on the castle door at Wittenberg. And he was asked to recant. And he is well known for saying on the basis of scripture and scripture alone that he cannot recant. And he says, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And in many ways, this at that Diet of Worms, where he says that he cannot recant. In many ways, we can point back to that moment as he stands against the state and unfortunately, even the church politics at the time. And it's really in a way where religious liberty was born and fostered. Dr. D. James Kennedy stood in this pulpit and preaching a Reformation sermon said that any movement that is started always begins with the discovery of something new. And for Martin Luther, the Reformation was a movement that was started because Martin Luther rediscovered grace. He rediscovered the Gospel of grace. And beginning today, we are going to begin traveling through what were those things that were rediscovered at the time of the Reformation? What allowed and convicted and gripped a man by the name of Martin Luther to take a, such a bold stand. And there were five battle cries, five core values, five pillars in which the Reformation, in which the leaders of the Reformation stood upon. They call them the solas of the Reformation, Sola Fide, Sola Scriptura, Sola Grazia, Sola Christus, and Sola Deo Gloria faith alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And each Sunday for the next five weeks, we're going to unpack which each of these solas represents and why it is so important. This morning, we're going to look at the first of these solas, sola fide, faith alone. The great author and theologian and professor J.I. Packer said, it was the doctrine of faith alone which was the atlas it was the atlas that carries the world of the doctrine of the church on its shoulders it was the doctrine in which emboldened the reformers to take the stand that as they read in scripture that the just shall live by faith and faith alone it was the luther it was luther and the reformers that went after him that stood for faith alone and so should we today and our passage that we'll be looking at this morning is Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3 we'll look at verses 1 through 14. Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 through 14 and this passage will help us understand why the ideal and the value and the truth of sola fide faith alone was so important 500 years ago and why it should be important to us today hear the word of God verse 1 of chapter 3 of Galatians O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified let me ask you only this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed! so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise through faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. A few years ago, about eight years ago, there was an article written in Sports Illustrated interviewing the great tennis pro, Andre Agassi and it was in this interview that it got beyond his professional career of tennis and they started to talk about his personal life. And Andre Agassi opened up in the most vulnerable way by saying, "Quote, I play tennis for a living, but I hated tennis. I hated it with a dark and secret passion, and I always have." You see, how could someone like Andre Agassi actually hate tennis? But he opens up a little further and he said, I hated tennis because it became more than a job. It took over my life. You see, if you're at the top of tennis, you're on tour 30 plus weeks of the year. And when you're doing that, everything revolves around tennis. Every decision you make, tennis is in the back of your mind. That's the main reason for burnout among tennis players in their 20s. Every single day, I knew that I had to prove myself. And if I didn't prove myself, I was an utter failure. I know this for myself. It's something that I've done since I was six years old. And there's a sense that if you even stop, if you ever stopped, you would be doomed for failure. That I would be deemed unacceptable. The author of the article said, no wonder why so many players hate their sport. It's a surprise that so few Admit it. You see, for Andre Agassi, the drive to be at the top of his game consumed him. The, the drive to believe in yourself absolutely overwhelmed him to the point where it took the great passion of his life, the great talent of his life, he became enslaved to it. It became the great burden of his life and it absolutely crushed him to the point where he is standing before a great multitudes of crowds, wondering if this will be the day where he lets them down. Will this be the day that he is considered an absolute failure? Is this the day where everything will come apart? You see, Andre Agassi lived a life always trying to prove his existence, trying to prove his worth and his value. But before we rush to judgment of Andre Agassi, if we were all truly honest with ourselves, we all are victim to this in one way or the other. You see, for... From the beginning of time, ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, humanity has been trying to prove their worth and their existence separated from God. They have been looking to themselves and believing in themselves, having faith in themselves to prove their existence and their worth. As I mentioned last week, the thing that troubled Martin Luther the most was how in the world Could a sinful, unrighteous man like himself justify his existence, prove his worth before a righteous and holy God? I mentioned last week that Luther would spend day and night at times crying out to God in his study. At times even taking the Scriptures themselves and throwing them against the wall. Saying that man could never appease the judge. That unrighteous as I am, I could never justify my existence before the righteous one. And see, we do this every single day of our lives. We try to prove our existence. We try to prove our worth. And if it's not trying to prove and justify our existence with God, we try to justify our existence with others. Children trying to prove and justify their existence to their parents Parents trying to justify themselves to their children. Employees trying to justify their work to their employer. Employers trying to justify their wealth and their affluence and their influence to others. That's why social media exists, doesn't it? One more picture, one more like, one more view, one more thing that we can post to somehow justify that we're someone. And I would like to make the case... That whether we realize it or not, every attempt to justify our existence with each other is ultimately, ultimately an attempt to justify our existence and our worth with God. You see, if you are created in the image of God, ultimately what your heart is longing for is to be made right with God. You see, it was the thing that plagued Martin Luther the most. And if we were honest, it's the thing that we are plagued with the most as well. How can we be made right with God? And for the Reformers at the time of the Reformation, it was this truth, the truth that faith in yourself will not be able to justify yourself before God, that faith in your works and in your effort and your ability will not get you anywhere closer to the righteousness of God. But it would be this truth, that faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, by grace alone, according to the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, would be the very truth that set a church free and turned this world upside down. Why was faith alone worth fighting for then and why should we fight for it today? This passage that we read will help us understand that this morning. You see, the first thing I want to draw out of Galatians chapter 3 is our eternal longing to be made right. If you skip ahead actually to verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul identifies the elephant in the room. He identifies what keeps us up at night. And he says it, he says it in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You see, what Paul wants us to understand that no one can be made right before God. That it's impossible according to your own effort, according to your own works, that he understood his audience well. He understood that these Galatians were trying to justify their existence according to the works of the law. He understood their longing to be made right because Paul at some point in his life had a longing to be made right with God according to the works of the law. And he wants to make it very clear in verse 11 that you cannot be made right. I know it's the longing of your heart. I know it's the longing of your soul to be justified, but it will never happen through the works of the law. And then what does he do? Go back with me to verse one through three. Paul calls them out. With, a, with, a, with an indictment of absurdity. What does he call the Galatians? He calls them fools. You can sense the pastoral intensity in this passage that Paul calls them out and he calls them the foolish Galatians. You see, the Galatians at the time were, were a very young church. And the Galatians were positioned between the Jewish synagogues and the pagan temples And it was the Galatian Christians that were trying to make a name for themselves. And what had happened is the the teachings of the Jewish synagogues and the teachings of the pagan temples were beginning to infiltrate even the church in the early days. And Paul is saying, you're fools. And then what does he go on to say in verse 1? It was before your eyes that Jesus was portrayed as what? Crucified. Crucified. I know your longing to be made right with God has somehow distorted your thinking that you can somehow be made right with God according to the works of the law, but Paul is saying before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. Now let me make a little side comment. Obviously the Galatians were not at the crucifixion. This this writing happens years after the crucifixion, and Galatia is not near Jerusalem. And so what Paul is trying to say in figurative language is the only Jesus you've been exposed to is the Jesus that has been nailed to the cross. The only teaching that I've given you is Jesus crucified. It's Christ and Him crucified. And what Paul is trying to say there is that if your justification, if you being made right, is dependent upon you, then there's no need for Jesus to be crucified. You see where Paul is trying to make the connection between their absurdity, between their foolishness, and the reality of the Christ that has been presented to them. You can't have both. You cannot prove your existence to each other and prove your existence to God on the basis of your works and also have a crucified Messiah. It doesn't work that way. It's utter absurdity. And that's what Paul wants the Galatians to understand. You foolish Galatians right before your very eyes. And then in verse 3 he says, are you so foolish? He says it again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That word perfected there in verse 3 means to be made complete. What Paul is saying is, you receive the Spirit through grace. Do you somehow think now your life is going to be made complete by the works of the law? No. He's saying that you are made complete. Your life is made complete not by trying to justify your own existence, but wholly relying on, on the righteousness of Christ alone. That is the only way that humanity can be made perfect. That is how you receive the Spirit, the Spirit of grace. Right before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. And ultimately, we today, 2,000 years later, are still trying to justify ourselves before others and ultimately before a holy God. It's what plagued Martin Luther, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's what plagues us even today. Martin Luther himself said, quote, If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Think about that. Think of the intensity of that comment. If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And Paul says any attempt to justify yourself is utter foolishness. But why is this so absurd? Why does Paul call them out on this? We'll skip ahead to verses 10 through 12, and it reveals to us why faith in ourselves, why believing in ourselves and the works of the law for salvation and justification just doesn't work. In verse 10, it says, all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then he goes on to recite Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 6. "'Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them.'" What Paul is trying to say is unless you are willing to abide by everything in the book of the law, you have no chance to be justified. This is why it's so absurd. He takes them back to the covenant language in the Old Testament. You see, the covenant language in the Old Testament was always connected with curses and blessing. If you keep all of the law, you will be blessed. If you break one of the laws, you will be cursed. And what Paul is trying to say is, you, do you not understand the scriptures that I reveal to you? That if just one law is broken, you are under a curse? Verse 12, he recites it again. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This is where we get the idea or the phrase, you live by the law, you will die by the law. If you think you can justify yourself according to the works of the law, you will be sorely disappointed because the man that works and lives by the law will die by the law. And what Paul is trying to say here is your attempt to justify yourself, your attempts to prove your worth and to prove your existence before God and with others, what Paul is ultimately trying to say, and follow me here, is your works will backfire. The works of the law will backfire. And what they will ultimately do is they will curse you. Think about that. Your attempts to justify your existence before others and ultimately justify your existence before God will ultimately, in the end, curse you. So the question remains, how do we escape this curse? If our longing is to be made right with God and our attempts to justify ourselves by believing in ourselves and having faith in ourselves only ends up in a curse, how do we escape the curse? Lastly, the answer is faith in Christ alone as our only hope. Look at verse 13. Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. You see, the message of the gospel... The message of the gospel that turned Paul's life upside down, the message of the gospel of grace that turned Martin Luther and the whole Reformation and the ultimate, ultimately turned the world upside down, and the message of the gospel that can turn your life upside down and inside out this morning is this message that the way the curse was removed is that not only was Jesus cursed, don't miss this, Jesus became a curse for us. You see, when the Bible tells us that Jesus became a curse for us, it means that He was punished for us in our place. When Jesus becomes a curse for us, it means that He loses God. He loses the Father. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father, as Abba, Father. But it is on the cross that He cries out for the first and only time what? my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus becomes a curse for us, He not only is punished by way of the cross, but His ultimate and greatest punishment is the loss of God His Father. To understand the gravity of this, it would be like walking into my son's room and saying, Preston, from now on, I am no longer your father, you will call me Mr. Pacienza, and I will call you Preston. Could you imagine how cruel and how cold that would be? No longer calling me father, and that is what God did with Jesus on the cross. He turned his face upon Jesus on the cross and abandoned him. And on the cross, as Jesus became a curse, God treated Jesus as if he was Peter. He treated Jesus as if he was Judas. He treated Jesus as if he was Rahab. He treated Jude- Jesus as if he was like Moses and David in their most wicked, sinful states. And in return, when Jesus became a curse for us, he treated us as if we were the very righteousness of God. God through Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the entire Old Testament points to this. It points to the righteous one being justified according to the works of the law. And it was finally the man by the name of Jesus Christ who was the only one that was able to come, that was able to fully fulfill perfectly the works of the law on our behalf and so in a way you could say yes that every single person in this room is justified by works justified by the works of jesus christ alone It is the work, the perfect work of Jesus Christ alone in which we are justified. That is why the cry of the Reformation, faith alone by grace alone through the finished work of Christ alone and in his work alone was so important 500 years ago and remains vital for the lifeblood of the church and the Christian today. Faith alone, sola fide, is the sole means of our justification. And when Martin Luther understood this, he said this, I felt like I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. Our faith this morning must rest alone in the one who was condemned so that we would never be condemned Jesus was separated by God so that we would never be separated. Our faith is in the one that became a curse so that we might become the very righteousness of God. It is for it is the message for the person that in school and in home and in family or maybe even church that never felt like they belonged. The message of God's free grace that was rediscovered at the time of the Reformation and will boldly be preached by God's grace from this very pulpit is the very message that allows us to understand that we belong seated at the right hand of God the Father. We can stand this morning because Jesus Christ took and stood in our place. In closing this morning, you might be out there and you might be a skeptic or a doubter You might be here this morning and you might be an atheist or an agnostic and you can come up to me after this sermon and you can say, Pastor, I'm right and you're wrong. You're not a good thinker. But then you're done. You could be a humanitarian and you could come up to me after the sermon and say, "You're, I'm right, you're wrong, and Pastor, you're just not a good humanitarian. But then you're done. And the Buddhists could come up to me after the service and say, I'm right and you're wrong, and you just you're you're not gonna do enough. You need to do more good than bad. And every religion in the world could create a line in the narthex, and they could come up to me and say, I'm right and you're wrong, but then you're done. But Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone could come up to all of us this morning and say this I'm right. You're wrong, but he doesn't stop. And then he would go on to say, I'm cursed, and you're kept. Welcome home. No other religion in the world can ever say that. Michael was nine years old, and he was an all-star baseball player. And he had made it to the regional version of the all-star game And his father had not made one single game the entire season. And this nine-year-old Michael begged and pleaded for his father to come to his All-Star game. And his father agreed. He would take off from work. And he would be in the stands at the All-Star game. And Michael comes up to bat and he just looks over his left shoulder just to ensure that his father's there and his father's standing up in the stands. And the very first pitch comes across the plate and Michael swings and he hits a home run. And he is proudly drops the bat and he starts marching to first base and he starts running to second base. And and at that moment, he turns to see his father. But his father is looking down at his cell phone. And his heart absolutely sinks. He had lost... The face of his Father. The truth and the reality this morning is if you are relying on anything except for the righteousness of Christ, you will never have the face of the Father. And it is only through faith alone, by grace alone, through the finished work of Christ alone, having faith alone in the Son of God, that you have the promise this morning that you will forever have the face of God and you will forever have the applause and the favor of God by Christ alone, through faith alone. That is what we stand on. So the promise is here for you this morning. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ alone, and trusted in His life alone and His death alone and His resurrection alone, then Jesus is presented to you this morning. You can have the favor of the Father. You can have the justification of God Himself. You can be made right with God this morning simply on the basis of faith alone in Jesus Christ. Accepting Him as your Savior and as your Lord, I would plead with you that you would not leave this place until you have accepted Him, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. It's a message that will change your life. And like Luther, it might actually make you stand on your head for joy.